0: Pronounced her deceased and began filling out the paperwork. After the doctor came the chaplain, a cheerful and rotund fellow, who said all the right things about life and love and family and death. Then he held hands with us in a circle next to the bed for a word of prayer. At the nurse's station, they had all the paperwork ready to go. Two months earlier, Maggie, always the consummate planner, had insisted I go to a funeral home and get everything set. Also, being a consummate skinflint in some ways, she had insisted on a simple cremation, no fancy casket, no memorial service. I had no intention of defying her last wishes in this regard, so I signed the papers, made sure Maggie's body was going to the right place, and then left with Chris. Chris would spend the next eighteen hours in his hotel room, recovering from near exhaustion. I returned to the apartment in Troy, where Maggie and I had been living since I accepted the Delphi job a year earlier, in July 2005. I wandered around a bit and stared at all the touches, a picture here, a potted plant there, that she had added to make the sterile rooms our home away from home. Then, overwhelmed with fatigue... I crawled into our massive bed. Maggie had been my bedmate for more than forty years. We had held each other and cried in this bed after getting her prognosis. Now it felt like the emptiest place in the world. After a few hours of sleep, I arose and dressed and went to pick up our youngest son, Alexander, at a nearby hotel. Still in shock and occasionally in tears, I was trying to grasp the notion of being a widower. Chris needed time to himself, so Alexander and I went to the funeral home as they were opening for the day and completed the arrangements for Maggie's cremation later that same afternoon. Because I was the CEO of one of the nation's major corporations, one that was going through a widely publicized bankruptcy restructuring, Maggie's death would be news. At her insistence we had told almost no one of her condition, so her passing was going to come as a shock. I had a lot of calls to make, and I needed to take some time with details such as death notices and obituaries. I went into the office to work on these tasks and was immediately and almost absurdly reminded that in the midst of my personal grief, which felt so enormous and all-consuming, the world continued to turn, and the demands of my professional life were not going to let up. For weeks, a militant union group called Soldiers of Solidarity had been planning to picket Delphi headquarters, and this was the day. And so it was that on this brilliantly sunny morning, scores of protesters from Delphi operations all over the state of Michigan "'arrived at the entry to our complex "'and rallied in full view from my office window "'to show their disgust at the company and at me personally. "'They chanted slogans, marched on the sidewalk, "'and carried placards saying things like, "'Replace Delphi Board of Derelicts! "'Delphi cooks the books, workers get burned! "'Save pensions, jail frauds! "'Ready to strike!' My personal favorite was a sign belittling my decision to accept a salary of just one dollar a year during a restructuring that was going to cost thousands of workers their jobs. It read, Miller isn't worth a buck. Even in this dark hour, I could appreciate the life-goes-on irony of the moment and the wit behind the signs. Karen Healy, one of Delphi's top officers, wasn't so calm. She marched outside to confront the protesters and told them that they might want to reconsider their demonstration out of respect for Maggie's death. There was a moment of awkward silence and then a sharp rebuttal. Workers die all the time, they said. The pickets stayed and were in full voice as I departed for the funeral home in mid-afternoon. Alexander and I went to view Maggie prior to her cremation. Chris was not ready to confront this kind of reality. The viewing room was big enough for 30 or 40 chairs, but Maggie was an intensely private person, and fittingly.